I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is a quick note to listeners before we begin. Today's show involves discussion about sexual assault. You know the hashtag, I believe women? It's become a pretty good example of how the exact same words can carry completely different meanings to different people. To the people who use it, I think I believe women just means that when a woman says that she's been sexually assaulted, let's stop doing that thing where we automatically disbelieve her by default. Are you sure you were sexually assaulted? Were you drunk? What were you wearing? That sort of thing. Let's not do that anymore. Instead, let's treat it the same way that we would treat any other crime. Like somebody says they were just robbed, a normal human person reaction would be, oh my God, that's awful. I'm so sorry. So let's start doing that for this kind of crime too. But to other people, I believe women meant the end of due process and the total collapse of the justice system, if not Western civilization itself. Really, you believe all women, all a woman's got to say is that guy raped me and we should just believe her and lock him up. I wish I were being reductive here, but that is actually how a lot of people interpret that phrase. Which brings us to the case of Stephen Galloway. Not a Galloway rape case, mind you. Stephen Galloway, the Canadian novelist who lost his job teaching at UBC after a former student accused him of sexual assault, has actually never been criminally charged. The sexual assault allegation has never been tested in court, and we're certainly not going to try to litigate it here. No, this is about the Galloway libel case, the allegations that he leveled against others. It's a case about what is happening to a bunch of people more than 20 of them, who said, I believe women, or similar things, when Galloway's former student came forward with her allegations. Galloway sued them all for defamation, for things that they tweeted, for things that they said in private conversations, for things that appeared in an art show, for things said in a review of that art show, for things they said seemingly in reference to Galloway, but sometimes without actually naming Stephen Galloway. Well, 12 of those people fought back, arguing in court that his lawsuit against them should be thrown out 
as a strategic lawsuit against public participation, a slap suit, a way to silence people who are talking about a matter of public interest, people who are simply trying to support somebody else. But to Stephen Galloway and his supporters, saying in this case that you believe women meant that you disbelieved him. It meant that you were calling Stephen Galloway a rapist. And that, he says, is defamation. In December, a ruling came down, and most of those defendants were not successful in getting the suit thrown out. So, barring any successful appeals, they will face a full trial. The outcome of that trial could set a precedent. When we hit like on that Me Too tweet, when we share something like that, when we say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, when we say, I believe women, are we breaking the law? Is a Canadian writer trying to chill free expression in Canada? Or is he simply defending his reputation against one of the most serious accusations that a person can make against another person? By the way, this is a conversation that might have taken place in part with Stephen Galloway himself, who denies the allegations of sexual assault completely. Galloway approached me some months ago. He was unhappy with our coverage of his case in the past, and he suggested that I interview him directly. I said, absolutely. And then he backed out. But before and after that email exchange, our reporter, Sheree Sucherin was digging deep into this complex case, and she brings her report in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jessica Lay, Mitchell Demers, Mo Bott, Catherine Eagleson, Sherry Klassen, Elijah Wolfram, Cooper Watt, and Sarah. I'm Sarah from Revelstoke, the ancestral heartland and territory of the Sinaiics Nation and the traditional territory of the Chequetma, Tanaha, and Silks First Nations. I support Candleland because it strives to be insightful, without bias, and fact-based. I love that Jesse owns the occasional error and changes his opinion if new information comes to light. How refreshing. I would like to duly note that while Jesse finds the climate crisis the most monotonous emergency ever, he is in fact covering it with episodes on mining, Fairy Creek, and the Wet'suwet'en. They all shed light on climate injustice. Keep them coming. Sharice, why have you been spending so much time on the Galloway libel case? Well, part of it is because Canadian media has largely looked away. For a while, the Galloway case was all over the news, especially because big names in Canlet, like Margaret Atwood, Joseph Boyden... They'd come out in support of him. And then he filed the defamation case, which was also pretty newsworthy. But then we kind of stopped hearing about it. It's important that Canadians do understand it, though, because it has far-reaching implications. Particularly, it deals with how group behavior online is dealt with, what some people have taken to calling cancel culture. It also reveals how sexual assault allegations present a particular challenge for libel law, which wasn't originally written with those kinds of allegations in mind. David Watherspoon is a lawyer for one of the case's defendants, known only as AB because of a publication ban. And this is what he says about the case's significance. This particular case is, as far as I know, the most significant anti-slap case in the 
context of sexual assault. So I think it's one that will be closely watched. It's high profile. It has important legal issues. And it's dealing with early legislation. So it's there's a whole number of uh, factors that, that make this an important case. But let's go back a little. I'll break down the basic timeline of events that led up to this defamation case. It basically started in 2015. And it didn't actually start with Stephen Galloway at all. It started with allegations of sexual assault surfacing within UBC's history department with a PhD student there. And students were up in arms about it. They had started to organize, they were speaking out about it online, creating support networks for victims of these alleged perpetrators. The CBC's Fifth Estate released their investigation on it in November 2015. Tonight on the Fifth Estate. And after pulling my hair a couple times, he actually put me in a headlock. The University of British Columbia, where several women are sounding the alarm. They say there's a predator on campus. I was naked and wrapped in a sheet. Started crying because of what I thought had happened. What did you think had happened? That he'd raped me. And when the women asked the university to protect them, they were told to keep their stories to themselves. We can't have you guys tell It was the same month that report was released that a former student of Stephen Galloway, that's A.B., she alleged that he had sexually harassed and assaulted her years earlier in 2011. A.B. initially said that there was a sexualized atmosphere underscored by drinking and suggestive conversations within the creative writing department. So A.B. went to a trusted professor with the allegation, and especially because of all the other attention being given to the topic at the time, the professor felt compelled to act. So alongside two others, this professor called an off-campus meeting within the creative writing department, minus Stephen Galloway, of course, where these allegations were discussed. And this meeting itself has been called defamatory by Galloway's legal team. They claim it helped spread the allegation around campus. But anyway, the faculty's meeting prompted the university to hire this retired judge, Mary Ellen Boyd, to conduct an independent investigation. In her extensive report, Boyd said that some information was not available, but that based on the evidence she had, she found that, quote, on a balance of probabilities, unquote, she was unable to find that an assault had occurred. However, Boyd found that the claims of sexual harassment were credible. So in 2016, Galloway was fired from his tenure position. And UBC was pretty vague on the exact reasons, but said it was due to a record of misconduct and a breach of trust. I think at the time, most people thought that that was the end of the story. But two and a half years later, Galloway filed his defamation suit against A.B. and more than 20 other people, many of whom were students or professors, alleging that they had recklessly repeated A.B.'s accusations in conversations and online. Many of them retaliated with an application to have the case thrown out as a slap suit. And it took a long time for the court to rule on which parts of the lawsuit could move ahead and what would be dismissed. But it was late last year when this decision was finally made. It was an extensive 242-page ruling that dealt with each tweet, each comment that Galloway and his team claimed had defamed him. And a lot of these expressions were not dismissed as a slap by the judge. So pending any possible appeals, the defamation case will probably go to a full trial. Okay, Sharice, I think that we should take a minute to go over what a slap suit is. Sure. And I can sit here and explain what a slap suit is. 
But in 2019, John Oliver did it way better in an episode of Last Week Tonight. SLAP is an acronym that stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. These are frivolous suits with no legal merit, specifically designed to stifle public debate or dissent. And the whole point is to put the defendant through a difficult, painful experience. And even if cases fail in lower courts, as they often do, the plaintiffs can find ways to extend them through intensive discovery requests, depositions, and appeals that drain the target's time and resources. So while Oliver is talking about slap suits in an American context, the same type of lawsuits exist in Canada. And Canada actually has laws in some provinces in order to prevent slaps. BC, Ontario, and Quebec all have passed anti-slap legislation in the last few years. This makes it so that defendants have the opportunity to have a case dismissed if they can prove someone was trying to silence them for saying something important to the public. So that's what's being debated in the Galloway case. The applicants had to make the case that their expressions, tweets, words, and articles they used were being unjustly silenced. And did they prove that? Some did, and some didn't. It's interesting because the judge sort of conducts a mini-trial here. She didn't rule on whether or not Galloway was defamed. She ruled on whether he can make a good case that he was, or if he was just wasting everyone's time and trying to shut down critics. And in this case, the judge largely ruled that Galloway does have a case. Okay, so what are these expressions? This is the question with any libel defamation case. What is this allegedly defamatory material, these tweets and conversations that he's suing over? All right. Well, let's state again before we do that no allegations of sexual assault against Stephen Galloway have been proven in court or even resulted in charges being laid against him. And some of the things considered in this case very explicitly call him a rapist. But other instances were more complicated. So let's go through them. First, there's A.B., of course, the main defendant who said over multiple instances in person and online that Galloway raped her. She later included these allegations as part of an art installation she showed at a gallery in the United States. The installation featured these giant, blown-up pages directly from the personal narrative that she had to write out as part of the UBC investigation. Um, The majority of pages were actually blacked out, leaving only certain phrases. So this is supposedly an artistic statement on the silencing of assault survivors. That art show is considered to be a form of speech and can go to trial. However, the verbal statements that she'd previously made against Galloway have been dismissed. That's really interesting. So saying, and I know that just speech between people can also be defamation in Canadian law, that stuff is not going to trial, but her art installation can go to trial? Yes. And a big part of that is because the judge ruled that it was obvious the art was a reference to Galloway. However, he wasn't actually named in it. Okay. There is Keith Millard and Annabel Lyon. They're both UBC professors, and they're the ones who led that meeting at the creative writing department where these allegations were discussed. So this is like two professors who are dealing with an allegation from one of their students against a fellow professor, and they have a meeting to discuss the allegations. And at that meeting, things are said that Stephen Galloway later says, "Okay, both of these professors are also guilty of defaming me. Yes, exactly. I think a big part of that was because When these professors brought the allegations into the rest of the department, they kind of did so in a way that suggested strongly that A.B. was telling the truth. They believed A.B. Yeah, I think they both strongly believed that this was a a true allegation. And are they going to go to trial for defamation? These will not, actually, but that's kind of based on technicality because the statute of limitations applied here. Okay. 
What else you got? Then there's Chelsea Rooney. She was a student at UBC, and she allegedly spoke to other people and said things such as, and I quote, Stephen Galloway raped A.B., end quote. Seems direct enough. Pretty direct. This verbal statement was dismissed and won't go to trial. What? Yeah, it's difficult to understand some of these rulings. <laughs> All right. I guess uh, we got a bunch more to go through, so let's keep going. There's Glennis Kirkmeyer, who is an outspoken advocate for sexual assault victims on campus at this time. She tweeted that Walrus Magazine's piece said Galloway had an affair, which we now know is what he calls raping slash sexually harassing a student. There was quite a bit of debate over the slash and what the slash meant. But this can go to trial. I have trouble following the judge's logic here on what can or can't. I'm, I'm sure there are lengthy explanations in the ruling, but uh, there seems to be a lack of consistency to me. Yeah, there's um, an interesting tweet where Mandy Gray, she called Galloway a prof who sexually assaults a student. And another tweet where she goes, a dude who has sexually assaulted someone. These are also cleared to go to trial. But... There's another tweet by Gray where she posted a photo of herself in front of this poster for AB's art show. And the tweet said it was a very important installation about campus sexual violence. So that will also go to trial. Yeah, I find this really confusing, to tell you the truth. Right. As an outside observer, I really don't understand why that one in particular. And I want to note that when Galloway sued all of these people, most were relatively unknown students. And they didn't actually learn about the legal action until after the claim was shared online. So talking about Gray, here's how she described finding out she was being sued. I had no idea that this was happening. Uh, So I rushed to Twitter and I got the notice of civil claim, not from the courts, not from a lawyer giving me a courtesy copy, not from the National Post, but Jonathan Kay had posted it on Twitter. So um, that's how I learned that I was being sued. I was very confused. I was very distraught. I didn't know how a lawsuit could even be announced in a national newspaper without being asked for comment, without being served, or even like a courtesy copy the morning it was going to press. Sharice, I kind of get why she would be completely shocked by that. And I also get why people would still be confused and surprised by how this is playing out. So, Sharice, just to kind of, like, reiterate why this is confusing me so far, it's not out of any sense of, like, generalized injustice. I think I would get it if it was, like, the direct statements where they say Galloway is a rapist. Yes, that might be defamation. He deserves his chance to prove that at trial. And then people who are more generalized and just sort of commenting on it. I mean, this is sort of like a facet of when a lot of people discuss a case on Twitter, some people are just sort of making a generalized remark about the case and are actually careful not to make a specific accusation. I would understand this if that's where this got divided. These ones are possibly defamatory. Those other ones, let's not waste the court's time. But it doesn't seem like that's the criteria under which the judge made these decisions. And some of the more general stuff is going to trial, and and some of the really direct accusations aren't. Right. Something notable is that a lot of tweets with this hashtag, UBC Accountable, which was kind of known to be the hashtag under which people who were talking about Galloway were using, it comes into play here because the judge uses that to suggest that that's almost a direct accusation of Galloway. I left the most unusual one for last, at least in my opinion. Teresa Smalik, a professor and art critic who wrote a review of AB's art show that I mentioned before. Jesse, she did not actually name Galloway or connect him to the show. She did mention AB's name, the Me Too movement, and some phrases from the art show. 
But this art review can now go to trial. So this woman shows up and reviews an art show and somehow finds herself getting sued and then facing trial in Canada for defaming the guy who the art show was about. Yes. That's weird. Therese, you have been deep into this story. You have been reading this complicated uh, court ruling. Do you understand why some of these passed the test and others did not? I think I have a decent understanding of what happened here. Okay. So in BC, for something to be ruled as not being a slap, two things have to be established in court. First, that the claim of defamation has substantial merit and that the defendant has no valid defense. And two, the judge has to determine that the allegedly defamed person's interest in getting his day in court outweighs the public's interest to have free expression about them. So in this case, like, the Galloway story breaks and a lot of people weigh in on it on Twitter. And if you can determine that that's a topic of, like, legitimate public interest, that's the public interest that the judge is weighing against Stephen Galloway's right to have, like, hey, I've been defamed. You made this serious allegation about me and I, I demand my day in court. That's what the judge is, is, is trying to balance. Basically, yeah. And something that also comes into play is whether any silencing around sexual assault allegations might also affect the public interest. Right. So the public interest isn't just our interest to, like, gab about Stephen Galloway. It's like, are we allowed to have comments about sexual assault and sexual assault allegations? Yeah. All of these things are supposed to come into play. But I talked to Hillary Young, who's a law professor at the University of New Brunswick and a slap suit expert. She explains it this way. The way the law actually works is that there's an initial question, which is, is this speech that's being sued over on a matter of public interest? Then we get into the much more difficult question of uh, both the merits of the action. So if this were to proceed to a trial, would it be likely to succeed? That's a very hard question to answer at this stage, because again, the whole point is to do this without a trial, without all the evidence that you would want at a trial. And then finally, this balancing, which says, is the harm likely to be suffered by the person whose reputation at stake? Is that such that we should allow the case to go forward? You're trying to determine whether to end a defamation action without knowing the merits of the case. And so whenever you do that, you risk denying someone their ability to defend their reputations. And that's not something the courts will do readily. So, Sharice, like a lot of this gets very complicated. But in another way, this is almost like the simplest defamation case I could imagine. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me that if you call somebody a rapist, their reputation will be harmed. Okay, sure. But what if you have relatively few followers and not that many people read the tweet? I spoke to one of these defendants, Glynis Kirkmeyer. She was a sexual assault survivor advocate from UBC. And she told me that that's the kind of thing that she was actually asked about in a cross-examination. Here's what law professor Hillary Young had to say about that. The way the law works is that you would be responsible for any reputational harm that you caused. I mean, in practice, it tends not to be that specific, in part because it's really hard to know precisely what harm your particular retweet as opposed to someone else's retweet 
caused. I think the courts just tend not to be quite that nuanced about cause and effect when it comes to defamation law. But that's how it would work in theory, right? So I publish something and I'm responsible for the harm that I cause. So if I have 10 followers on Twitter, the damages against me should be quite small relative to someone who said exactly the same thing on Twitter, but who has a million followers. In this case, you have a number of people being sued, some of whom were just, you know, one more person saying similar things. Does that affect people's impressions of the the plaintiff? Well, Maybe not, but the way the test of defamation works, it doesn't always focus on that question. That's so weird. I mean, I get it, you know, with, with great power comes great, like, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like strange to have laws that depend on how many Twitter followers you have or an application of a law. Like if I tweeted the exact same thing as somebody who only had a few followers, he might get a lawsuit against him thrown out as a slap and I might find myself on trial and then found guilty of defamation and by that logic, then I don't know, like if Weird Al tweeted the same thing, then I guess he'd be super guilty and the damage would be that much greater because, you know, it's Weird Al. He's got five million followers. Yeah, that's how the court sees it. And from the Galloway side, he did suffer a lot of harm. As his lawyer says in documents, sexual assault is one of the most serious allegations you can make. His lawyer talks about his ruined reputation, the book deals he'll never get back, loss of income. Galloway's lawyer said, The attitude that just one person's involvement is not significant ignores the dynamic of a mob and the collective effect of many punches. The law of defamation rejects all these attitudes. It does sound like this is like a deliberate and specific attempt to put cancel culture on trial. Yeah, that's the sense I get. Okay, so when Galloway backed out of uh, the interview that he proposed that I do with him, he sent me a statement. I'll read from it here. I am not suing the defendants for their personal beliefs, for talking about sexual assault, or for advocating for legitimate victims of sexual assault. In each instance, the defendants made factual statements which carry the meaning that I committed rape. Justice Adair's ruling also affirms this. I did not sexually assault A.B., and at trial, I will prove it. While it requires no imagination to see how a false accusation of violent rape could destroy a person's entire life, as well as the lives of those around them, it's clear that confronting even the possibility that this is what has happened to me is something that a great many people simply refuse to do. False allegations are rare, but they do happen. This is what they look like. Charisse, I think it's true that false accusations of violent rape could destroy a person's reputation, perhaps even their life. But I also know that other things had an impact on Galloway's reputation. The Boyd report found that a sexual harassment allegation against him was credible. We learned through the reporting of other journalists that Galloway had this history of alleged inappropriate conduct with students. He was said to have frequently gone drinking with his students and that there was this incident, this alleged bullying of a male student who he seems to have threatened, suggesting that he was going to, like, harm the guy's reputation in the Canadian literary community as payback for some sort of a perceived slight. There was this other student who he allegedly slapped in front of other students, and there are conflicting reports as to whether this was a joke or perhaps a joke that went too far. I don't know. We don't know if any of these allegations are true. But add it all up, and there is reason to believe that Galloway's reputation might have already suffered. 
Yeah, exactly. And this is why it's complicated. And this is why lawyer Hillary Young kind of mentions the problems with uh, defamation where it's hard to prove specific harm. Normally, a defamation trial might get to the stage where the defendant can say, I didn't harm your reputation because you had no good reputation to lose. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was the rape allegations that prompted all of that other information to come out. And of course, there are different degrees of bad reputations. A reputation as maybe a shitty professor is different than a reputation as a rapist. Fair point. Finally, I want to talk about what the court had to say about this issue of the public interest. A big aspect of this case is it in the public interest for people to be able to talk about sexual assault on social media or elsewhere. Broadly, I think people agree that it is. Mm -hmm. So this lawsuit pits that public interest against Galloway's private interest, the effect of these expressions on his life and livelihood. So ultimately, Justice Elaine Adair ruled that the public interest for Galloway having his day in court was strong. Adair also rejected this idea. Quote, I reject the proposition that courts as a traditional social institution remain hostile to women's accounts of violence, compelling women to turn to Twitter. A lack of faith in the legal system does not inspire confidence in someone tendered to the court as an impartial expert whose role is to assist the court. Moreover, the lawlessness of Twitter is not necessarily a friendly place. A.B. and Mr. Galloway, too, can attest to that. A key part of her argument is that many of the tweets, even those that didn't name Galloway, could not be defended as fair comment because the context under which they were published made it clear that they were about him and that they could be interpreted as factual statements. Teresa Smalik's art review, which does not name Galloway, did not pass because of these reasons. And of course, some people disagreed with Adair's ruling. Glynis Kirkmeyer, in particular, is critical of what arguments and evidence Adair allowed. She said that she was only allowed to submit a very limited amount of evidence and that she had no power to argue there should be more. You know, as a defendant, I'm not entitled to go off on facts that I think are relevant, but it's really up to the court what they think is relevant. And what are you going to do? I mean, you can't force your way in there. They've got absolute power to decide what to hear and what not to. Adair was very deferential to the perception that Galloway has a right to go to the public to clear his reputation. Well, you know, it actually is harmful to someone's reputation to be a rape victim, too, because people hate rape victims and will say, oh, you know, so-and-so is a liar, so-and-so is ruining someone's life over something that didn't matter. The judge also discovered the use of Twitter as a forum in which to discuss these kinds of cases. Wait, what? Yeah, she says, regrettably, Twitter is a source of misery to many. And there is no public interest in promoting the careless or reckless use of Twitter. You know, Sharice, I've heard that kind of talk for years now where people gesture towards something being disreputable or trashy, lawless, because of where it was said, not what was said. You know, like, oh, like, where did you read that? Did you read that on a blog? You know, like, is that where you're getting your information from? You're getting your information from Twitter? And it always strikes me as, as a cheap way to avoid dealing with the content. And I'm not aware of the courts taking a position in the past on one medium or one forum being higher or lower than another. Given that Twitter is literally the space in which movements like Me Too kind of happened and got sparked off and found their momentum, 
that kind of position from the court does seem to have some chill potential. Yeah. So I actually spoke with David Watherspoon, who's the counsel for AB, and he did tell me that the ruling has already had negative impacts for people who work with sexual assault survivors, and of course, for the survivors themselves. Since the judgment came out, I have been approached by several people, all women, who have come forward to tell me about their experiences and their disappointment with the judicial system. One is a counselor uh, who had her own incident of sexual assault uh, reporting it. And now she doesn't counsel women to go to the police or to report because of this decision. She's found it um, demoralizing and it, uh, she sees it as a step backwards. That was my concern when I first read the judgment. And this is um, an example of where it's having that real life effect, which is hugely disappointing. And as Glynis Kirkmeyer agrees, at least she told me that the potential chill effect of this lawsuit was not given enough weight by the court and that some of the people who spoke up for IB have already decided that they better just shut up. Some are, you know, no longer on Twitter. Some are no longer publishing in academic spaces uh, as they had before. Their behavior has changed. The silencing tactic does work. And it doesn't need a final decision from the court to work. It worked right away. Jesse, so one thing worth pointing out is that all this is very specific to Canada. Because in the U.S., in a defamation case, the person claiming to be defamed has to prove the statement to be false and that there was malice rather than the other way around. Right. So if this were happening in the States, Stephen Galloway would essentially be putting himself on trial. He would have to prove that he is not a rapist in order to prove that comments suggesting that he might be were defamatory. Right. But if this matter goes to trial, then the burden of proof is on the defendants. They have to prove that what they said is defensible rather than Galloway having to prove that it was false. I think what all this is getting at is that defamation cases in our society have a particular power outside of just stifling a single person. Basically, there is more legal liability for tweeting about a Me Too case in Canada than doing that in the U.S. Here's Gladys Kirkmeyer again. I don't live in Canada, and I don't think I ever would. This isn't a society that I want to be a part of. I think it treats people in a way that is against the values that you purport to have on human rights. And it's that kind of hypocrisy uh, is distasteful to me. So, you know, no love lost. I am spending tens of thousands of dollars of my own money to defend it on principle. And here again is law professor Hillary Young about why this type of trial might not be well suited to a case with sexual assault allegations. I think these allegations of sexual assault are a really good example of where these laws probably work less well. I think it's probably because the allegations are so serious. So where I think the allegations are so serious, you're probably just less likely to have an anti-slap motion succeed. So there are all sorts of ways in which I think reform is needed. You know, I think one that would help in cases like this is to take a much more contextual approach. It doesn't require changing the law. It just means you look at a communication, whether it be an art exhibit or a tweet, and say, did that actually affect someone's reputation? And if it didn't, then it shouldn't be subject to defamation law. I know it's not technically the test of defamation, but that's what defamation cares about, and that's what we should care about. 
Okay, wait a second. Sharice, false accusations of sexual assault do happen. They're very rare. And, and I have no idea if the allegations against Stephen Galloway are among them, but like they do happen. If the idea here is, is that when that happens, when an innocent person is accused of sexual assault and everyone on Twitter is calling them a rapist, they shouldn't be able to do anything about it. They shouldn't be able to sue for defamation. And the reason why they shouldn't be able to sue is because that might prevent other victims of real allegations from coming forward. Like they should just take one for for society, take one for the team and, and suffer whatever reputational damage. I mean, rape is a very serious crime. It can destroy someone's reputation. And if it's a false accusation, I mean, that just doesn't sound right that somebody should just like go down for the greater good. Right. I mean, I agree with you. And Galloway, in another follow-up email to me, called these slap motions meritless, and he claimed that they have actually delayed him having the opportunity to clear his name for almost three years. But I don't know what the alternative is here. Because ultimately, I think that it's important to remember that this whole practice of people calling out other folks for sexual assault on Twitter happens in many cases because the other options to seek justice are so terrible. The formal recourses, the cops, the schools, the courts, they've all failed pretty terribly to deal with sexual assault. And now with this case, there's a good chance the appeal won't be successful and Galloway might win again. And maybe he should, and maybe he shouldn't. But none of that does anything to solve the original problem. And a court ruling against women for talking about it on Twitter or in an art project could scare other women from even talking about being assaulted. The bottom line is... We're still in a culture where women are afraid to come forward about sexual assault. That is your Canada Land Show. If you like this show, please support us. It takes a minute and it is very reasonable and we need your support. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Do it now. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at CanadaLand.com. That is where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which will fill you in on everything CanadaLand publishes every week, in case you missed anything. And our newsletter will also change your mind about puns. They can be good. This episode was reported by Cherise Sutrin, with production help from Jonathan Goldsby and Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, if you like this show, the only way that it exists is because thousands of people just like you support us every week with a small subscription payment. And they get t-shirts and they get ad-free podcasts and all kinds of other great stuff. Please join them. Go to canadaland.com slash joiner. Just click the link in the show notes. It takes a second. This summer, you need clothes that you can wear anywhere. For that, look to American Giant t-shirts, shorts, jeans, and sweatshirts. American Giant makes everything in the USA. So when you buy, you create jobs and improve local communities all across the country. Shop summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout.
That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History Presents... The Iron King, available wherever you get your podcasts.